0: What's up everyone, welcome to another episode of the Heresy podcast, the show where we talk about building, scaling, and of course running high growth SaaS businesses. I'm your host, Dimitri Stanimirov, CEO and co-founder of Heresy, and on today's episode I'm joined by Farlan Dwell, VP Sales at Clean Shelf. Farlan is an experienced SaaS sales leader and an all-around great guy. He's worked at six different startups, two of which were quiet and one went public, he particularly enjoys the journey from zero to 10 million in ARR, so if this is where your company is at, you'd absolutely love this episode. Stay tuned to find out what pitfalls you should watch out for during this phase, as well as Farlan's tips on how to get there in the shortest period of time. Farland and I also talk about why you should never have a gong in the office, the things founders get wrong in terms of sales, and much, much more. Alright boys and girls, here we go!
1: Give me a let me just grab my coffee. How you been, man? Ah, good, been man. Welcome. Good, yeah. Uh,
0: Listen, I really appreciate you making the time and being patient. I know this has taken over a couple of months to coordinate, so um, yeah. I really
1: appreciate it. I'm glad uh, when you're <laughs> having fun.
0: Yeah, it's all good. I I know, I know. And again, like it's been a while in the making and I really wanted to talk to you. So uh, I am grateful that we finally made it happen. Did you get your coffee? Yeah, we're all coffeeed up. Okay, good. And I'm uh, I'm sufficiently caffeinated myself. It's five o'clock here. Three three <laughs> coffees in one one too many probably, but yeah, ready ready to get going. So I think I told you last time when we spoke, we share an investor, and he introduced us. But um, when he did, I, I quickly googled you, and uh, I uh, stumbled upon an interview you did at Sasta. I think back in 2016 when you were at Rainforest QA. Correct. Yeah, and uh, I watched it. It was super interesting. But there was one line that you said. Um, it was sort of towards the end of the interview, in the Q&A. You said, we're looking for awesome, curious people. We're never going to have a gong in the office. Fuck that. And I was like, I have to have this dude on the podcast. <laughs> I have to have it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so super excited to have you. I do believe in the same thing. You should never have a, a gong in the office. Absolutely, find that. Um, so I thought it's going to be <laughs> an, an awesome episode to have you. So again, thanks for making the time. Um, listen, we always we always start the same way. I always ask um, whoever is the guest to give us a quick introduction of who they are. And I thought it would be interesting uh, with you to start actually a little bit further back historically. So not just professional career, but tell us a little bit about yourself as as, as an individual. Obviously. Um, one thing I didn't realize when we first connected I thought you were American turns out you're Canadian so it would be interesting to you know to start a little bit further back in terms of uh, time sequence and talk about your childhood if you will kind of uh, what got you to say or how you ended up moving from Canada to the US uh, and then we'll, we'll take it from
1: there Yeah I I think a good place to start is is um I find myself in sales now but I, I never wanted to be in sales Okay. and sales had always found me at different points in my life. Uh, the, the first thing to know is my father's in sales and has been in sales his entire life but funny enough we didn't really talk about sales that much and I probably more uh, steered away from sales huh. because of that uh, and 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 did other things. I found myself in college at getting involved in some student union stuff and became the managing editor of the newspaper. Yeah. and yeah, you were managing the business, but you were selling ads. And I was like, oh, this is sales. Right. And so I found I was pretty good at selling ads, and I, I got out of college, and uh, I was, I was, uh, I took my first job. So I was, I found myself in Montreal, which was a French-speaking province mm-hmm. in Canada, and uh, and one of the only English jobs there that I could find was was telemarketing back in the day and it, uh, it turns out I was working for ab uh, a B2B SaaS company mm-hmm. uh, and uh, doing about 125 cold calls a day wow and so I was doing I was doing sales yeah. <laughs> and, and, and uh, I went I, I took I I went to do a startup in Montreal and uh, I was a, a product manager there and I was a product manager for Six years. And uh, what I found was I was good at managing the business and good at, I was okay at managing people. What I was really good at was doing deals mm. with uh, external companies and uh, selling initiatives up, selling roadmaps up mm. in terms of the organization and selling uh, things that we needed to do and get done to the team. Uh, and so I found after about six years of doing product, I was pretty good at product, yep. uh, but I was great at sales if I really took a cold hard look. So, I, 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 about 10 years ago found the cloud and SaaS. Uh, we were selling, uh, Google apps with Google, uh, a company that I had. And it was, it was a ball. It was a ball. I had, I had a great time. I had a blast. And so I've been doing SaaS sales ever since for about 10 years plus. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've, I've only really worked in early stage. So call it seed stage mm-hmm. A. Mm-hmm. And some B, mm-hmm. and and the fun for me is the journey from zero to ten million. Yeah. And uh, so I've been really lucky enough to have a, a good predisposition towards sales yeah. and being pretty good at it, but also having the experience of several companies and that journey to zero to ten million. And so now I have some pattern recognition, which is also really fun. And yeah. so so being in, being in Silicon Valley. And, and being in cloud and SaaS, which is which is massively growing, uh, yeah. there's lots of companies to help here. So mm. so that's what I'm up to. That's awesome. the story.
0: Awesome. So you said you found that you had a predisposition for helping companies who are on the zero to 10 million ARR journey. What is it that you think makes it such a good fit for you? Is it is it the fact that you, you, you've been in the product management role in the past, you understand uh, the rocky road that a product needs to to go through in order to find this product market fit and how challenging it is to sell a product while you were on that journey. What What is it that kind of gives you this natural inclination to to be good at that zero to 10 million error?
1: Well, there's a few things. Uh, I think if I'm being really honest and really kind of breaking it down to the base is I like making money. I like to, yeah. <laughs> make, you know... I and and I like making an impact. I like to see yep. Yep. I, I like to see that I can make I there's a, there's instant gratification there too. There's so many yeah. things. So so yeah, so the formulaic answer for me is oh well I love helping startup, you know, I love helping founders on the early stage of their journey. Realizing yeah, but their dreams. Oh, really real, right. And, and and there is there is joy in that too. But of it is really fun to go into a business that's got 20 customers yep. and they've got kind of a product market fit but they don't really know. They've got kind of some pricing but they haven't really tested the upper limits of it, not even close. Yeah, They've got kind of a pitch but they're not really sure what they're doing. They've got kind of a sales process <laughs> but not really and it's not working and they've never done it before. And I can go yep. in and I can look at it and some I'll go in and I'll say, well, this is not something that I can help with. And reading between the lines, the business is probably kind of fucked, or I really can't. There's somebody else that's better that can help. Yeah. 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 uh, In that situation. But if I can go in and I can say, Hey, if we do this on the go to market side, we do this on the, on the value prop side. We try this with pricing. We bring this rep in. I think we could get from, you know, say a hundred thousand dollars in ARR where they were today to like a million in nine months or a year. And when founders have literally been grinding. For three or yeah. four years, yeah. hiring and firing and hiring and failing, trying to sell and just you know getting jerked around by customers—it's really gratifying. It and, is, uh, and 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 so that's 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 what that's there's one for you. Yeah, you
0: know, it's it's interesting you say this. Like um, the example you gave. So uh, I, I had Jason Lemkin on the podcast uh, a few months ago, and he was saying he said salespeople are not magicians. They can act as an accelerator. and They can fuel the growth. But the the thing you described to a founder who, as you said, had been grinding for three four years and could really struggle, but if you can come in and take them from, you know, 10,000 10, to ten million, uh, well, maybe a million in, in a year,
1: that almost seems like magic, right? It is. I, I think it is. I think to get to a million dollars as a B two B SaaS business, and I'm talking B two B. I come at this from B two B SaaS. Of course, okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. Is 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 massive, and if those if you're retaining those dollars. Ie your churn is is is, you have good retention. Yep. You just took you just took your uh, market cap. I'll call it from uh, to ten million bucks because you're getting ten x on those dollars in SaaS, and that's that's huge. That and then once you get to that million, you can put together so many other pieces of how to get to $3 million, ultimately how to get to $10 You got so many more data points and so much more momentum to go from. So I, that, that, to me, is one of the fun phases. And it is a bit of magic, but it's not really magic. I'll tell you, one of the things that I look for in a business, mm-hmm. when, I, when I meet with founders, VCs go in and they do so much due diligence when they're going to invest. Yeah. And I think most of it is just a complete waste of time complete okay. waste of time. And I can go through and I can ask them about the product and I can ask them about the competition and I can ask them about the pricing and I can ask about the founders and I can ask about yeah. uh, the, the technology, the trajectory or the whole, you know, 4T quadrant that VCs use and, and mm-hmm. weeks and weeks of due diligence. But what it comes down to for me, if I can help founders at that stage is their attitudes.
0: Okay, can you elaborate on this a little bit?
1: So when I meet with founders, Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go into some of what they're doing and the products and all that. But what I want to understand is where's their head at from a go-to-market perspective. What have they done from a go-to-market perspective? What have they tried? Who have they hired? How do they think about sales? I've met yeah. with some founders, and I'll, I'll just ask them straight out: How do you feel about sales? Yeah. And some some will say, Ah, oh, you know, I think you know we don't really need sales. That's a very extreme. That's obviously like, oh, okay, well. Yeah, um, You yeah. know, that's obviously extreme point of view, but some think that some just want to be the Atlassian, the next Atlassian. Yeah. And I'm like, eh, there isn't, really a, there isn't a really a next Atlassian. That's a yeah. whole other conversation. Yeah. But but yeah. What's, what, what is their point of view on sales? And I'll, I'll cut to the chase. A really good situation is where a founder says to me, Farland, I've hired three sales folks. We've had to let them all go. Uh, we tried our go-to-market two times, it's failed. We don't really know what we're doing. Tell us what to do.
0: That is a good situation for you. That's a good starting. That is a great starting. This is crazy. Most people would run away from this situation, right? They'd like, a, holy shit, like, I'm that, out.
1: <laughs> that is a great starting point, right? Now, We now, as they say, we can begin. Because, right. Because... If if you're a, a first-time founder or, or even a second-time founder, third-time founder that wasn't involved in go to go to market, go to the, go to market sales, and and especially on B two B SaaS, like there is a formula, and and I don't know, need to go that deep into the formula. Jason Lemkin's amazing, and uh, oh, I've cool. worked with Jason. Uh, he's he's got some great stuff. The formula is out there, but it's really that willingness to put your ego aside, to have opinions, founders can have opinions, but they should be really weakly, quote, weakly held um, yeah, yeah. when when you're actually going to bring somebody in that's done mm-hmm. it before. Now, obviously, yep. your business is unique, and there's some things that that are going to be flexible there, but where founders really screw it up is when they they try to tinker. They try to uh, uh, debate stuff and 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 have their opinion uh, reign true, and I'm like, cool, you can have the conversation, and let's like ha- talk about why we're going to do something. But really, that also just slows down the process needlessly. Once they've failed enough, and they're like, here's the keys, then then we can actually get some shit done. Right. Do you do you mean so when you say this? Do you mean once
0: they fired their first sales executive or first? Do if you kind of follow the the Lemkin uh, recipe or the, the the VP of sales, the first commercial leader? Is this what you mean? You should hand in the keys and sort of step out of the way, and of course have your opinions, but as you say, have strong opinions, weakly held. Is that the
1: idea? Yeah. The, that yes. And. And what happens is in, at the early stage, it's not even the hires that you're going to make that are going to know everything. You have to find an advisor. You have to find help that is going to instruct you properly. Because I'm not saying your first go-to-market hire is going to know everything. Yeah. But I'm, I'm saying that you are going to need some coaching, specifically from B, a B2B SaaS go-to-market perspective to and they, to to get to a million, to get to ten million, and who they and and who they take that advice from is really important. Who that founder leans on for that go-to-market knowledge is super important. Now, a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll lean on the VCs.
0: Right? Yeah,
1: and that may that may seem great in theory. They've got a whole bunch of other companies that are doing like-minded stuff, but you also have to understand where somebody's coming from. You also have to understand someone's point of view and in the vc game how does it work in general you fund 20 companies and what's the goal what's the goal for those 20 companies one and a half needs to be a unicorn yeah the other 18 and a half can burn so mm-hmm. so so think about that point of view right and i'm not saying this is all vc give not a general example what needs to happen? No, it, needs- is, it is the
0: standard vc math right, right?
1: so 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 if if you're getting advice on your B2B SaaS early, early stage strategy, VC is gonna say, oh, self-serve. Network effect, that's what you need to concentrate on. And I don't yeah. know if your product isn't, I don't know if you have the company DNA for that or if your product has the DNA for that, if your onboarding has the DNA for that. But they don't give a shit. It's like one mm-hmm. of them hopefully is going to catch fire and explode. And so figure, yeah. but, but is that gonna work for your company? Or in four years, you're gonna say, oh shit. This self serve thing is not working. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so you've got you've got to get the appropriate advice. That's that's kind of the theme um, here. And and what that takes is introspection too. That that's introspection on, on from a founder perspective, from a founder DNA perspective, and from a company perspective. I, I get it. So
0: let's one uh, w- one thing I wanted to pick your brains on. Um, we believe it or not, we've been chatting for nearly twenty minutes already. Uh, one thing you know, I, I always try to do with these conversations is to to make them practical. So when people listen to them, they can take something away and apply it to their business. Of course, if it makes sense. Lots of founders listening, lots of early stage companies, the ones that you like to help, and as you said, the thing that you're most passionate about is that journey, the zero to ten millionaire. Ryan, you said you've done it a bunch of times now. So again, like Rainforest um, QA, which we we mentioned, now we're in uh, Clean Shelf, etc., and you, you've done it a bunch of other times. And you said you're getting pretty good at pattern recognition now. You can go into a business and fairly quickly see what works, what doesn't, and basically. Get things in order so you can kind of get to that 10 elusive 10 million millionaire. as quickly as can you give us some milestones that you should aim for some things that you should do uh assuming that you're the first commercial lead going into a role like this
1: uh, milestones so maybe I... not even
0: milestones but if you had to if you had to draw a blueprint things that you look for you look to implement obviously the the interesting thing that you did at rank well i thought it was super interesting uh, at Rainforest Rescue, I was uh, spiking prices a bunch of times. Right, increased prices a bunch mm-hmm. of times, which for a company which was at the time grinding and finding it hard to to onboard new customers, might seem to a lot of people counterintuitive, right? I think mm-hmm. to a lot of salespeople, the natural reaction when shit's going badly is to say, "Oh, I'll give you a discount," right? right. And you actually, when you know a complete 180 you said no. We are increasing prices and you did it not once, but you know, a bunch of times, right? Yep. So it's, it's those kind of counterintuitive gems that actually seems to have worked really, really well that I'm looking for. And I think you've got not just one. This one obviously is super yeah. interesting to me and I'd definitely love you to talk a little bit more about it, but I'm pretty sure you've got more than one, right? Let,
1: let me fire some stuff out at you and then we could drill down on what you think is interesting. Sure. So Let's do it. So, so counterintuitive counterintuitive gems. The first one is standing up to a customer and not having it be a subordinate relationship, uh, where mm-hmm. you are the subordinate, uh, where you're coming at it from from equals. And, and you don't let the customer indicate and dictate the way that the sales process is going to go. You mm-hmm. dictate the sales process because you know how to properly and confidently and successfully get a customer onboarded on your product, which is going to provide them value. That is- yeah. That is massive. That, that is a game changer for some companies in terms of actually closing deals. Mm-hmm, number, mm-hmm. Two, number two, having some self-confidence in the product and the value that you provide, what I yep. find is companies can't just double their price. They can 10X it. And when wow. I tell them that and when I show them the actual, you shouldn't be selling this for a 1000 bucks a month. Here's how you can sell it for $10,000 a month they literally almost fall off their seat and they should yeah. <laughs> they should they should because they they gave birth to the baby they've been with yeah. it for 5 years and they remember you know when it was strung together with a piece of duct tape and they were happy to have anybody just look at it never mind buy it yeah. <laughs> but but this is but but the, the the key underlying learning there is there is such a gift that comes along with with bringing new blood into a startup you see, see things totally fresh. You don't have the baggage of yesterday. So that's kind of attached yeah. to, the, to the second point. The third point is, or I'd say the third kind of unexpected, the, 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 the gem, is when startups hire an account exec, they get them to be a full cycle account executive. That is, go out and get leads and close them. Kiss a death. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. best way to set your account exec up for failure and just spin for a few years. I've seen it time and time again. So so that's a third kind of unexpected.
0: So you so you would uh, you would basically advocate getting an SDR team in place from the, the very start.
1: Depending on the business.
0: Or generating leads some other way but not yeah. demanding that your account executive
1: generates their own leads. Correct. So so okay. even at an early stage, if if yeah. you've got some money You've you've got to invest properly, and saving a couple of bucks is not going to help you. Uh, mm-hmm. The the one of the principles that I that I really tailor most everything that I do before ten million dollars is simplicity, focus, and accountability. Those are, those yeah. are the three. Really, really, really important pillars. And so, if if you look at the account exec position, what do you hire an account executive for? Close deals. Close deals. That is it. <laughs> and if you're if you also want them to generate leads, well, that's not simple. It's going to be mm-hmm. really hard for them to focus, and you're going to have a lack yeah. of accountability. You're mm-hmm. going to have a lack of accountability. So, if you could say to an SDR, go generate me twelve sales qualified opportunities a month. That that fits all three, and if you can say to account executive, "Go close one hundred twenty thousand dollars a month," that fits all three as well. But companies yeah. rarely companies rarely do it for a variety of reasons, and it is it is the kiss of death by, yeah, by far. Yeah.
0: it's interesting. We've had guests in the past who have argued the opposite point. I'm not going to speak on anyone's behalf. You know, as I said, uh, different approaches for different companies. So we we'll leave it at that. I, I do agree with you. Um, one thing that we, we sort of when we, we first had the conversation around uh, you being on the show, we, we had this um, sort of brainstorm around what else you'd be passionate about talking. And one of the things you, you mentioned was how uh, I quote here, how founders fuck it up in the early days, in brackets, sales that is. So, uh, so w- one of the things that you just mentioned kind of reminded me of that. So obviously one of the, the ways in which they can fuck it up is by, as you say, hire an account executive who is also expected to generate leads. And close them, etc. Any other ways? I suppose you might want to touch on culture here. I don't know what did you have in mind when when you when you sent me that one line. How how founders fuck it up in the early days?
1: Yeah, I, I liked what you just alluded to uh, in terms of culture. I think I think uh, founders sometimes just hire sales as a necessary evil, and they don't realize right. who salespeople are and what salespeople are. And in my experience. If you find the right ones, you can have wonderful human beings who are curious and hungry and ambitious and really want yeah. to do well by the business. Uh, and you can yeah. have sales folks that are just mercenaries. And yeah. uh, uh, then yeah. there's a big there's a big difference between them. So, so the culture is huge. I, I think there's, there's lots of stuff around culture in Silicon Valley. Here's what culture is. Two things. The culture is the founders. The company will yeah. be what the founders are like. Uh, yeah, and the culture is winning or not winning, <laughs> and yeah. and the the former yeah. is a fun is an awesome culture. Um, yeah, how how do how do founders how do founders fuck it up? Is I, I see it every day, and and it and it really kills me. Uh, one of the I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Just one of them is a really cool logo comes in, the hot new tech company logo, whatever, Facebook or uh, Amazon. Yeah. Or, Google yeah. or uh, Uber, whatever it is, and everybody's mm. like, wow. You know, everyone in the startup just goes, wow, this is awesome. We are talking to Uber. And and what I'm alluding to, and that's not really, you know, that's enterprise, uh, pick another Fortune 500 company. I don't know, Procter sure. & Gamble, yeah. whoever it is. Yeah. Bank of America, nine times out of 10, 9.9 times out of 10, those logos and those deals are a complete waste of time. Uh, yeah, founders get starstruck by these logos and they bend over backwards for them. Uh, these these sales cycles, which aren't really, you, you know, this is a if you do some discovery, you'll figure out after a call this is not something worth pursuing. Uh, they yeah. they just spin and spin and spin, and they do it for a variety of reasons. They think there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that rarely is. <laughs> uh, they they think this is going to look really good on their A series pitch deck and, and their logo yeah. salad. Be wary of. Big companies off the bat. What you want to do is just close some deals and get some some pattern recognition, get some repeatability. Figure out figure out a group of customers that look the same, smell the same, walk the same, talk the same. You need to get engineering focused on this on the right use case. You need to get onboarding focused on a proper onboarding. You need to get sales focused on figuring out a pitch that works and can work over and over again. So that's the first one. I've seen companies go out of business by having a whole bunch of really cool enterprise logos on a slide. But when you look under, underneath, they're not paying much or they're all free POCs that just spin and spin and spin. That's the first thing. Second thing is, second thing, which I just alluded to, free POCs or free trials in B2B SaaS in some cases, also the kiss of death. And there's a lot yeah. there how would you How in. would you
0: approach it then? Because th- this is a really interesting one. I think to your point, like so many people get that one wrong. So what would you say it's a good way to do trials? So should you do trials at all?
1: Yeah, do trials, but the customer should pay money for them.
0: Okay, so pay trials. And how long would you say, I guess it depends on the product, but what would you say is sort of a good trial length for you, a B2B SaaS business?
1: If you can do it in a day, the trial is a day. If you can do wow. it in two weeks, the trial is two weeks. The shorter, the better. The shorter the better. Okay. You want to have you want to have urgency around that yeah. trial. You want to have urgency yeah. around that initiative. So yeah. So where it gets really tough is companies will push back and they'll say we don't pay for trials. Yeah. Or We don't we don't pay for POCs. And the the startup, depending on what at what stage, will have to acquiesce. Yeah. Now, if you're trying to get your first twenty or thirty customers, you're going to have to do a, a whole bunch of stuff, and that's great. Do a trial, figure yeah. it out. Learn, see if they get onboarded, uh, see what you can learn. Maybe that customer will get on success. But after that, if you've got a proper onboarding, you've got a proper roadmap to success, you really need to be charging for that trial for a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons, I'll give you one. If you sign that customer up for a free trial and they come in on Monday in their project planning meeting and they're getting all the folks together that need to implement your solution and there's a fire that inevitably comes up, which there will, or there's three fires that come up and that, co- that company has resources allocated to POC number one, two, and three, number, number one and two are paying, number three, is not, is you, guess what's going to get the yeah. deprioritized? <laughs> guess what's going to get deprioritized? And, and yeah. that's an extreme example in terms of they've got other POCs going, which they do, and they pay for them. When, when the other thing comes up where, you know, the Singapore office is having a meltdown on their infrastructure and they need to, you know, okay, well, what, where can we divert resources? Obviously on this free thing that we're tinkering around with, it's not an initiative, yeah. all right? So yeah. that's one. And number two, you totally delegitimize your product. Free Absolutely. is free, yeah. free is free. Yeah. And number three, if they get it for free, who says they have to pay for it after two weeks or a month? That, that it'll yeah. just keep spinning for months and months and months. Uh, yeah. So that's another yeah. kiss of death.
0: Yeah, so you've given us quite a few and uh, I'm sort of wary that we've already uh, been recording for half hour Try to keep these, as I said, as short as possible so it's easy to digest and actionable. There were a few other things that I wanted to touch upon. So perhaps we can do that very quickly. I just want to take you back to this idea of price increases because I find it quite fascinating and perhaps we can make it very specific. So if you, if you are happy to talk about uh, Rainforest QI, um, uh, QI, sorry, because I mentioned it um, before. Again, we, we started talking about it. You said founders would often come in 10X lower than what they should be charging. How, how do you know that you're charging less than you should be? Is it a matter of like, incrementally increasing the price tag until too much is too much. How do you do it? How did you do it again? Like I think a good example here would be Rainforest because you did it like multiple times there, right? And you did it in a fairly short period of time if I remember properly.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were doing free trials when I first got in there and then our minimum price was 500 bucks a month and then our minimum price was a thousand dollars a month and our minimum price was $3,000 a month. And I was amazed, I was like, oh wow, customers are still very happy to pay this. Yeah. And then it was $5,000 a month. And some customers hemmed and hawed. Maybe there wasn't quite the right value there for them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. other customers were like, yeah, this makes sense. We're offsetting We're offsetting one head. And then we went to $120,000 or $10,000 a month. The customer was still buying. Now, that was a little too high for some customers. Right. And, um, and what we would have seen a year ahead is they would have churned. So you have to calibrate. But what you need to do is figure out not... You, it's not about what the product costs. It's, it's about what's what's the, the benefit to the customer if there's an ROI. And a lot of times you don't have the luxury of having a hard ROI, but that's yeah. okay. You need to do your discovery and you need to quantify like, what's the problem there? And what are you solving for? And what's the impact going to be on their business? What's mm-hmm. the impact going to be on their business? And you have to be tenacious enough to have the conversation with them and figure out, what's going on there. So that's the first thing. The the second thing is have the guts to just double your price and see what happens. You don't need yeah. to get an you don't need to get everybody in the boardroom and fire up the spreadsheets and do an MBA business case analysis. That's probably why at like early stage as well, you can yeah. you can just run. So double the yeah. price and see what happens. Customers aren't gonna reach reach you know punch you no, a fisk isn't going to come out of the telephone and punch you in the face. Okay. Just have the conversation and see what happens. And so, so experiment really quickly and you'll yeah. see what that looks like. And sometimes you kind of say, oh, wow, customers was able to pay for this. And then you can figure out why were they able to pay for it, even if you can't get all that in discovery. And so on that, on that journey, you start to learn. Where you don't learn is when you get into what I call group grope and you get into yeah, the boardroom yeah. with your team and you do a pricing analysis for a month. Yeah. yeah and you never you implement just,
0: anything at the end of it anyway. <laughs>
1: just just double it and, and see what happens. But you've got to have the guts to do that and you've got to have yeah. the confidence to do that. Yeah.
0: And what's the worst that can happen, right? If you double it and it just doesn't work, I guess, you know, you can always revert back to what it was and maybe... Do an incremental increase of like I don't know twenty five percent of. I'll, you know, I'll I'll go on re- I'll
1: go on I'll go on record and I will say that it is never not worked.
0: So doubling the price is always a good idea when you join an early stage startup.
1: Sure, as, as, a, start, <laughs> as, as, a, as a start, yeah, yeah. I love but you yeah. you you've gotta you you've gotta also have the you have to have a a holistic go-to-market to be able to do that as well. Right. And right. so what does your onboarding look like? Who are you selling to in that organization? A great way to to 5X price is not talking to the engineer or the, the QA guy, it's talking mm-hmm. to the VP Eng. It's talking to the mm-hmm. CTO because mm-hmm. they get the business value of the product. Yeah. They get the business value of the product. You're talking to the end user, they're just thinking about oh, well, how can this help me in my one discrete area that I work and how much of a payment can be to onboard? You know, If you talk to the right person and talk to the right buyer internally, you've just 3X your price. So there's, there's a whole bunch around that in terms of go to market, how you position your product, the value prop, who you talk to. There's a lot of things involved, but these aren't massive work efforts
0: yeah there's a lot already here um two two more questions from me and then and uh, then it's a wrap one we already touched upon i but i do want to pick your brains on this idea and the, the thing you said we'll never have a gong in the office why would farland never have a gong in the office
1: i'm just allergic to to broy sales culture i'm yeah. allergic to sales culture where sales folks are just looked at as mercenaries who generate yeah. dollars i think some refer to them as coin coin operated.
0: records, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, one of the one of the luxuries that I've had in in being able to hire and lead sales teams is that I get to hire folks that are great to work with and that mm, mm. have interesting backgrounds and are curious and are competitive and are ambitious and who want to win, uh, but yeah. also who want to win for the right reasons. Yeah, and and um and have been able to build teams that are family-like and really you're spending a lot of time together and you're really trying to do very very difficult things you really have to like who you're working with yep and um uh, i i just i just think that there's there's a new way that we're selling today in in b2b staff and i think there's a new type of salesperson i went to um I forget. It was an Andreessen Horowitz sponsored kind of sales thing. I won't mention the sales leader. Uh, this was yeah. back in the day. It's have been five, six years ago. And um, I just remembered the, the the tone and the tenor of how he built sales teams was just a lot of chest thumping, raw, raw, rawing, yeah, yeah. that that yeah. I'm um, yeah. That that just it just didn't it just didn't feel good. Um, well, so well,
0: I'm with you. I'm with you on that one.
1: So that's a little bit there.
0: Yeah, awesome. Final question, um, and we really need to to wrap it up. Uh, we always finish actually with the same question. You obviously just gave <laughs> listeners tons of practical, actionable advice, but what I wanted to know is what is the single best piece of sales advice that you were ever given?
1: I think one one of my One of my mentors, he always, he always came at me with, you've got to have a healthy level of uh, tension on the line when you're, when you're dealing with customers. And that spoke to the, uh, the having a, an equal relationship and it shouldn't be a subordinate relationship. That was really, really interesting from a tactical perspective, how Mm. the conversation changed and, and frankly, how the whole sales cycle changed. So what happens is, When you start to just acquiesce to everything the customer wants, hey, send me Mm -hmm. your deck after the call. Hey, I need to reschedule the call. Hey, I can't bring this this person or this decision maker to the call. Hey, I can't do this. Or hey, we need you to do this. Guess what happens when negotiation time comes? Hey, we need a fifty (laughs) percent. And based on all the other stuff that you've given them, their ego, just their ego, won't let you fight that retort that. They'll they'll say, You've done everything else for me. You know, like, go, yeah, to you yeah, want, yeah, go to hell if you want yeah. to want to do this So well, that was that was really interesting. And I would call that piece of advice keeping healthy tension on the line.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks so much again for making the time. Uh, I cannot wait to, to get this episode out. Again, it's been in the making for quite a few months, so grateful for, for making the time. And uh, I know it's just the beginning of your work day, so uh, go kick some ass. And uh, thanks for being with us.
1: Happy selling. Good luck.
0: <laughs> Cheers, man.